as a music lover, it is almost impossible for me to read that last phrase in the gospel without hearing in my mind's ear a mixed chorus from Handel's Messiah singing harmonies on his yoke is easy and his burden is light. St. Augustine observed centuries ago that the one who sings prays twice, once in the words and once in the music. That is why hymns and songs often produce a more powerful message than sermons. In this church, the music is especially powerful. But just as just a middling amateur musician, I'll focus here on the words. Jesus uses an image that seems archaic to us. My yoke? In our society, we rarely see oxen yoked together to pull a plow, let alone human beings carrying something on their shoulders under a yoke. On this campus, it's a lot less likely to see someone carrying buckets of water on his shoulders than someone carrying a surfboard under her arm. But in Jesus' ancient rural society, the rabbis spoke of the yoke of the Hebrew law, which laid a burden on observant Jews. Jesus uses the image about his own message. Hear that same message in, in Eugene Peterson's more contemporary version of Matthew's Gospel. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The yoke of which Jesus speaks is what he asks of those who follow him. It is a commitment to live in what he calls the kingdom of God, that place where God is in charge. Again, to be less archaic, I'll use the word realm instead of kingdom. Jesus' message is to proclaim the realm of God. He identifies it as a realm of radical love. Loving God with everything you've got and loving your neighbor as yourself. It is a place for people to go to recover their lives in the face of great suffering. There are, of course, many kinds of suffering. The kind that all of us know is personal suffering. I became intensely aware of that place when I was 35 years old. One beautiful May morning in Washington, D.C., not unlike this morning except there wasn't any smoke, my husband and I were riding our bicycles through the leafy canopies of Rock Creek Park when he suddenly collapsed, fell from his bike, and died. It was a heart attack brought on by a congenital condition that he never knew he had. After the ambulance, the hospital, the doctors and nurses, the autopsy, the funeral, 
the legal process, shock, denial, anger, and worst of all, notifying our family members and friends, I was indeed worn out. I was burned out, bottomed out, beginning to be ready to put my life back together, ready to look for something new, new job, new perspectives, new pursuits. It came to me that it would be a good time to find a church community. I had been raised in the church, but drifted away as a young adult. Sound familiar? My husband had not been interested in regular Sunday morning attendance, but now I felt drawn to return. After seeking to find a place that seemed right for me, eventually I arrived at St. Albans Church. What initially attracted me most was the zest with which the congregation sang the hymns. But I found much more, including new friends. I also found a group for young widows and widowers that met every Friday night for over a year, over dinner, to talk about our experiences and our hopes. In time, I began to recover my life in that little realm of radical love. But personal suffering and recovery is only one part of Jesus' message about entering God's realm. I am, after all, a privileged, upper-middle-class, white woman, citizen of the United States of America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world today. What about all the people with none of those attributes? What about the people who have always been and may always be poor and oppressed? That certainly was the condition of nearly all the people who actually listened to Jesus in ancient Israel. What was he offering them? Radical love. Just as there are many kinds of suffering, so there are many kinds of poverty. Spanish-born Jesuit John Sabrino, who has lived in El Salvador's terrible struggles for many decades, distinguishes between two types of poor people. One of them he calls the economic poor, those who live on the border of survival, who have barely enough income for food and housing and all the other things needed to make it through day-to-day life. In Jesus' world, they were known in Hebrew as the Anawim, the people living bent under the weight of a burden. To these poor people, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The second type of poverty Sabrino identifies is sociological. The poor who are despised and marginalized by the rulers and norms of their society. People considered as scum. In Jesus' day, that meant the tax collectors and sinners, those who, it was believed, aided and abetted the Roman authorities in cheating their own Jewish subjects. The prostitutes who were considered immoral and thus vulnerable to shunning and even stoning to death. 
You will remember that Jesus was demonized for associating with tax collectors and sinners. He seemed to have gone out of his way to do that. And he seems to have realized that there is considerable overlap between economic and sociological poverty and spiritual poverty too. So what does Jesus offer to poor people today? Food for the hungry is a pretty basic approach to economic poverty. Feeding people is about as close to a universal Christian practice as you can get. Bread for the World, an ecumenical service ministry, provides foods to needy people around the globe and effectively lobbies Congress about issues of nutrition and human needs. Locally, too, feeding hungry people offers an opportunity to be part of God's realm in the world. You probably are aware of Café Picasso here on the grounds of St. Michael's, where there is a weekly lunch and food pantry open to anyone who wants the food and the fellowship. Some remarkable young people, many of them from IDEAS, the undocumented student group, are involved in the effort. Now, meanwhile, every fall, the YMCA gym to which we belong raffles off a Thanksgiving turkey to people in the gym who play their game of exercising a prescribed number of days. It's the kind of game I like to play. You know, you get a little turkey on a card, and the next day you get another little turkey on the card, and finally you get to be in the raffle. So one year, I won the turkey. The next thing, the thing is, I don't like roasting turkeys. I've done it too many years to want to roast another one. So I got in touch with one of the students at Cafe Picasso. We met one chilly November evening on the corner here in Isla Vista to hand off the frozen turkey. She said, I said, I'm so glad that ideas can use this turkey. She said, there aren't many of us in town this weekend, so we're donating the turkey to a community meal. Sounds like God's realm at work to me, radical love. And what about the people Sabrina calls the sociologically poor? People who are despised by others. Plenty of those around, especially in these days. The undocumented immigrants denounced as rapists and murderers. They are said to number about 11 million people. That includes Arts and my de facto son, whose deportation case is scheduled to come up in immigration court in the fall of 2018. The sociologically poor also includes the unemployed workers in Appalachia and the Rust Belt. They are often denounced as rednecks, trash. Since on the California coast, I rarely come in contact with any of them personally, the book that is highest on my to-read list is Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, who comes from that community, which is a considerable bestseller. I imagine God's realm as including active compassion for their poverty, too, radical love. One more thing. I have to say I believe there is political poverty as well. 
the New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan characterizes Jesus as a peasant revolutionary whose vision of God's realm aims at replacing existing structures of oppression. That would mean, at the least, public policies aimed at getting rid of poverty. It would mean poverty in its many dimensions would be abolished. Probably this is because politics has held lifelong fascination for me. I think Crossan is on the right track. So, what do you think? What does Jesus' message offer the poor? What is your experience? <laughs>